Today's Gospel gives us the account, Mark's account, of the correct identification of Jesus by Peter. We're more familiar, I think Catholics are more familiar with St. Matthew's version of this, which is longer, and in which Jesus identifies who Peter is. You are the rock, on this rock I will build my church. That's not included in Mark's version. But what is included here are a number, <clears throat> a number of very important uh, elements of our faith. First of all, the distinction between what, uh, what other people say about Jesus and the truth declared by the church about Jesus. So Jesus starts out with the question, who do people say that I am? It's, it's an opinion poll, and he gets these different answers. They all sound great, but they're all wrong. John the Baptist was the greatest born of woman. Elijah was one of the greatest of the prophets. And it would be great if Elijah were to come, but it's still wrong. And this is what happens so often. People have lots of lofty ideas about Jesus. They think he's a great teacher. They think he was a great example of a fully actualized human personality and all these things. Well, fine. <laughs> but if we really want to know the identity of Christ, we have to ask the apostles, led by Peter. When, G when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks in the name of the church. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the long-awaited, anointed one who has come to save us. So that, that distinction between what, what the world says and what the church says is important to this day. Or if you want to put it the way Jesus himself puts it, thinking the way God thinks or thinking the way human beings think. Because in the second half of this gospel, we see how quickly Peter slips from, from, pro, from proclamation of the truth, thinking the way God thinks, to, to rejection of the truth, rejection of the plan of God, thinking the way human beings think. Why does Peter make this sudden shift? Because of the cross, the announcement of the passion of Jesus. Jesus very openly explains what this, what, what this Christ, who was just declared, is going to do and how he's going to save mankind. He's going to do it by suffering and dying and rising on the third day. And Peter said, no, no. He, in fact, it says it quite strongly in, this, in Mark's Gospel. He began to rebuke him. <laughs> well, if you rebuke Jesus, you're likely to get rebuked in turn. And that's exactly what Peter received, a rebuke in response. Don't, don't say to God that he's wrong. You can ask him questions, you can, you can wonder why he does things the way he does, but don't declare that he's wrong, because you're wrong if you do that. And that's what Peter experiences, uh, a very sharp rebuke, get behind me, Satan. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. Okay, so we get this distinction between how human beings think and how God thinks and how important it is for us to welcome the revelation of what God thinks, the revelation of God's plan. God, to our surprise, has a plan that is for our good. He's not out to 
condemn us. He rebukes us if we're wrong, but he doesn't condemn us. He's not, he, he has not sent his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world will be saved. And, and it's striking whenever we, whenever we read about someone who opposes this plan, or whenever we reflect on our own life and our own sin, and we say, well, I've opposed God's plan, we discover even though we're in a fallen condition, even though we, we rebuke God in our inner thoughts, or even though we fall away, God does not give up on saving us. He doesn't change his mind about us. This is striking, and it's actually at the heart of the whole Bible, the love of God for his people. It's, it's, God is not an impersonal God, an impersonal force. He's not a distant God. He's not an angry God. He's not a punishing God. He's a loving, merciful God. He's a God who, who on his own initiative, establishes a covenant with his people, a kind of marriage bond. But this is, the more you think about it, the more shocking this is that, that God is faithful to his marriage to us even though we ourselves are not faithful. He doesn't dump us or give up on us. He just keeps going. Now, I, I, I think this comes out in reflecting on the book of Genesis. Now we're up to chapter 9 here, the uh, account of God blessing Noah after the, the flood has, has uh, receded. Remember, God made creation good and he made the human person good and, and he wanted to have this peaceful communion with us, but we turned away by sin. And it got worse and worse until God said, well, this, is, this is going in the wrong direction. I've got to clean this mess up. And that was the flood. But you see what happens here. God renews his intention to bless his people. Be fertile and multiply. That's what he said to Adam. Fill the earth. Now, in, so, so, so there's this renewal of God's plan, God's good plan for his good creation, even though it's not that good. It's, it's a marred creation. Even after the flood, there's still sin and sin condition. But God just keeps going forward. And this is a first mention of covenant. So this passage in chapter 9 of Genesis brings out some things that are ancient stories that have still relevant uh, points to teach us. I'll just pick out a few of them. One of them is, uh, well, first of all, the, the call of God to man to be fertile and multiply and fill the earth, to, to abound on the earth and subdue it. God's plan is that, that we do that. Now that is, it flies in the face of a common modern idea that there are too many people in the world and that the reason why the environment is degraded is because of the human family. Therefore, we would be better off with fewer people. The world would be better off. We would all be better off. So don't multiply. Don't fill the earth. You see how directly man has turned against God, how quickly we shift from God's way of thinking to the way human beings think. And when we do that, we're wrong. So to think that, that, that we're the problem and that we have to be eliminated is, is wrong thinking. And as you know, the, the demographic reports are now quite bleak. Countries are 
losing their population. They're, they have a facing a demographic winter because people are not having children, not even enough to replace their own generation. So that, you can see, is a very modern uh, concern, and it is related to this ancient story in Genesis. So that's one thing, fill the earth and multiply it. Then there's this uh, realization that God made a shift here in what we could do with creation. There's, there's this alienation or this fear that animals and, and birds would have now in our relationship with them. In the, in the original creation, that, that animosity or fear was not, it did not exist. But remember, in the original account of creation, what was given to man to eat was the green plants not the animals, not the birds and the fish. But here, God changes it a little bit and says, now you can eat anything. You can eat anything that's, that's living. Not only the green plants, but also the animals and the birds, creatures that move about on the ground. Just don't eat something with lifeblood in it. Don't eat anything still alive. Well, now, again, modern debates about uh, vegetarianism or, or the vegan movement and whether it's God's will that we eat meat or not. Um, if you get into, into any discussion with Christian vegans, uh, or fundamentalists anyway, they'll say, look, at the original plan of God is only to eat green plants. It wasn't God's plan to eat flesh until after the fall, so it's an effect of sin. I don't think that's the church's teaching, but it's, a, it's an interesting argument that that God gave this permission after the fall. Then there's this comment about not just all living things with blood in them, but specifically human life. Human life is distinct from any other living thing on the earth. And he says, I will demand an accounting for human life. If anyone sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, which is the, the line, one of the first lines that proponents of capital punishment use. Now again, a modern argument about the legitimacy of capital punishment or Ill illegitimacy of capital punishment. Uh, this is a long-running long debate, but in, in very recent times, in fact, in the pontificate of Pope Francis, the church has made an even stronger uh, uh, argument or, or rejection of capital punishment. Okay, so I'm just saying how these ancient stories are still very relevant to us. Now, the last thing I just want to mention about this passage is this establishment of the covenant. God, as I said, this is the story of the whole Bible, the covenant of God with his people, or the love of God for his people. And it's, it's a very one-sided thing. You know, in a, a covenant in the ancient world was a, a, a sacred agreement between two parties, two equal parties, and they both agreed to fulfill their part. Well, here God says, I'm going to establish a covenant with you. And I'm going to give this sign that I'm going to be faithful to this covenant forever. And the sign, of course, is the beautiful rainbow. God's part of the covenant is he's not going to destroy the world by a flood again. Well, what's man's part in the covenant? No mention. 
It's a very one-sided thing. <laughs> what, what happened to the, the idea of the covenant is, you know, give and take. Uh, you know, this is, a, this is a contract. What do you have to do? Well, it's implied, of course, that we have to be faithful to the covenant, but, it, but, the, but the terms of the covenant are not, are not specified other than you know, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth, and eat what you want. <laughs> but you see what it is. God's initiative to establish this bond with us is, is, in, is so one-sided, and, and he doesn't change. So... Now, we know that we, we've broken a whole series of covenants throughout salvation history. And, and, and God said, I'm going to have to make a covenant that will last forever. And that's the covenant in his blood when Jesus comes and sheds his blood. Back to what he says to, to, to Peter in the gospel. But my, my reflection here, based on what God said to Noah, is that we can be confident in God's love for us because every time there's some revelation of it, it's the same. He is a, he's just an unchanging, uh, uh, unstoppable lover, faithful to his, to every covenant he makes, especially the covenant he has made with us by the shedding of his blood for our salvation. What's our response to be? Faithfulness to him. <laughs>